This podcast is brought to you by Gemmer. Collect, trade, share on Gemmer.com. Well, guess what? I'm at Winslow Homer's actual studio in Prouts Neck, Maine, and I'm here with Mark Bessier. And Mark, who are you? <laughs> I am the director of the Portland Museum of Art in Maine. And thanks so much for joining me. And I can't believe I'm actually in Winslow Homer's studio where he painted. And Winslow Homer is, I think, the premier American artist. Do you disagree with that, or do you kind of agree? It's, it's, I agree entirely. I think if you look over time and you look at there are some uh, great American artists, but there's no doubt over time Winslow Homer, Hopper, O'Keefe, and probably for younger generation, you got to think of Andy Warhol as being kind of the premier American artists that are the best known mm-hmm. and the most famous. Right, and if I recall correctly, I remember when Bill Gates bought a major piece of his. Are you familiar with that? And at the time, and I'm not sure if that record holds, you know, a number comes to mind, and I didn't look this up today, something like $35 million? I think that I think that that sounds about right, give or take a few million, and it was a few years ago. You can purchase a Winslow Homer on the market, drawings and watercolors and smaller paintings. But what's important about that particular purchase was that it was a major oil painting, and major oil paintings by Winslow Homer just don't come on the market anymore. And if I recall right, it was a private sale. Let's talk a little bit about the life of Winslow Homer and how he actually ended up at this studio here in Maine. Well, I'll go back a little bit and do a little bit of a snapshot. He's born in, in Cambridge, um, and he's really trained in Cambridge and um, in a print shop, not as a, so to speak, educated, you know, as a professional artist or a fine artist, but in the print shop. And after that training, he heads down to New York and ends up really embedding himself connected to Harper's, and that's a weekly newspaper, and he was in the Civil War doing drawings that were sent back to the paper and then published really the next week. Soon after that, he heads back to New New York, um, very impacted, very affected by the war. I think that had an impact on him for the rest of his life. It really was so much tragedy and horror that never left him. And he spent time in New York and then um, over time went to England um, for a few years in the late 1870s, early 18, 1880s. At that point, his family had started um, visiting Prout's Neck really as a, um, you know, as a summer place or as a vacation. And over a period of time, the family fell so in love with it, they actually purchased a home here, which is right next to the studio. And he arrives in Maine in 18. 18- 1883. You're, you're actually um, a key factor in how the museum was able to obtain this property, and, and good for you. Do you want to talk about how that went? Sure. It's a lot of people. Any major project like this, I can tell you that um, there were a lot of people involved in making this happen. One of the most fortunate um, and great pieces of this story is is a man named Chip Willauer, who sadly died um, a year ago. And Chip is the great-great-grandnephew of Winslow Homer. And he actually owned the studio. And I think he felt, as much as he wanted to keep it in the family, who are very active in the Portland and Maine community, he understood that this was a real responsibility. Responsibility and something kind of, you know, this is like American culture, American identity, and something that the family had to really consider who could take care of the house best for the next legacy or the next generations. And so he worked out a, a deal with um, the Portland Museum of Art so that we could acquire it. And that began the process of restoring it and then eventually buying some of the land that's attached to the studio. I, I bought um, Walt Kuhn's home 
you know artist Walcoon. Yeah, um, down in we Cape Nettick. Collection for sure. Uh, yeah, and um, I, I scouted around in that house, and in the eaves of the attic, I found his etching plates. Now, has anyone really looked uh, really um, deeply into this property to see if they could find anything interesting? As you can imagine, because of Homer's fame, people have been looking since uh, he died in 1910. So what we were really able to um, collect with the home itself or with the studio was because it was in the family for so long, so much of his personal belongings came with the house. There's not much of the furniture left, but we even have you know, a painted skinned fish. We have some mounts. We have a day bed. And, and some of his objects, including some of the studio objects, um, like an octant from 8 Bell, and a bell and some of his prizes. Some of the best, um, I would say, ephemera or objects and things that he owned are actually at the Bowdoin College Museum of Art, which has a wonderful collection of, of Homer memorabilia. Were there other family members in the area? Absolutely. When they purchased the house um, in the early 1880s, it really became in some ways a family homestead. The father and mother came up from Cambridge and were here as much as they could be. You have to imagine, again, it gets pretty chilly on the coast in Proud's Neck, you know, in Maine. And they would stay as long as they could. And the father um, was here for, for up until he died. Sadly, um, I believe his mom moved up here for a little while but soon passed away. But the family really made this kind of the place where they all came together. At this point, the brothers are in different locations um, and doing business. But the family would come together here. And one little piece of information that's been interesting and uncovered, I think, as we get more involved in, you know, Homer... um, history is that at one time the family actually owned more than half of Proud Snack and very consciously were developing it to sell it as lots in a summer colony. When the Homer family arrives here in the early 1880s, it's really a hotel culture. It's the beginning of leisure time. People with money leaving the great cities, coming up here for extended periods of time. But the Homers kind of move, are the first ones to move from that hotel culture to a home. And they actually had some cousins who developed Montauk, which is a beautiful summer colony on the tip of Long Island, and they had already seen how entrepreneurial the family had been, and they started buying up lots here and actually building houses to sell. Now, I'm not sure how Winslow Homer was as far as painting in his studio and looking out the window and all that in cold days, and and I know that he he was really against painting from pictures, which was popular in his um, career. People were doing that. Are you aware of any artists that he painted with and actually painted with here in the studio itself? It, it, it's a very good question. He, in, in some ways, and again, you know, um, over time, what's real and what's myth kind of comes together or gets conflated. Um, one of the family stories I've heard um, is that, to a certain extent, once they began developing the land up here, he was just fine having all the artists in a gunquit because the, if the artists moved in, they were going to lower the price of the sales. So, And even in New York, he was in a studio building in New York, and he was friends with William Merritt Chase, and there were artists that were there. And um, he actually had a relationship with Henry Lafarge in Boston. Um, but he did not spend much time with other artists. I think he was very involved and interested in the market. And when his paintings went down to New York, and he was very interested in the pricing of them and what was going to be installed, he was even looking at exactly where each painting might be hung in the gallery in New York. So he was very involved in the market. But as an artist, he really wasn't teaming up like in some of the colonies in Maine, whether you were in Georgetown or Agunquit. You know, he was not that that interested in a partnership as a painter. 
Now, during his time, the Impressionist movement, you know, began and was pretty strong. I never can picture anything that had any type of influence of that. Are you aware of him uh, taking or even experimenting in anything out of his, like, academic style of painting? It's an interesting question because there's no doubt if you if you think about the time in which you know Homer is painting and he's kind of at the height of his artistic you know power, um, certainly impressionism and post impressionism is taking place in Europe. And I, you know, Homer's a smart guy; he knows what's happening. Um, if you had to consider any particular influences, someone who I've always thought would go back a generation we might be Gustave Courbet. I think there's a roughness to the Courbet touch. Those paintings are a little bit hardier; um, they're a little darker. Um, Homer was never one to really spend too much time with really happy, bright paintings. He did some wonderful landscapes. Well, he actually, he did, excuse me, that's not quite true. I mean, in the 60s and 70s, he's doing some genre American scenes. You know, Breezing Up and The Whip are amazingly positive, forward-looking paintings. But I think when he comes to Maine, which is what I'm thinking about, they are very kind of dark marine paintings. You know, except for a couple on Saco Bay, we see some incredibly beautiful sunsets. Um, they're a little dark, but in terms of influences, I think Courbet was interesting. If you look at Fox Hunt, which is considered by many one of the greatest American paintings of all time, there is an impact. I think he's seeing what's coming from Japan. There was a whole series of woodcuts coming from Japan, and there's a notion of this flatness of the picture plane and the way in which he's building up um, a landscape but it's becoming flatter, and it's not recessing into the background as much. And I think that had a very important impact on him in his late painting. Well, we spoke earlier about um, one of his quotes, and one of the quotes I thought was was really fun of his was, uh, my whole workday consists between 4.15 and 4.30 because I want to catch the late afternoon uh, light or something like that. Um, also, I not in any of his quotes I can find online, but he mentioned at the end of his life that he was pretty much done everything that he could do was out of him do you have any uh, insight on exactly what what he said and and why and did he actually hang up the brush before he died that's a, you know, I, I, I should know the answer. Did he hang up his brush before he died? There's no doubt that at the end of his life, you know, his output had decreased immensely. Um, he never, his output was never, you know, huge like some artists, um, particularly in terms of his large oils. It definitely begins to slow. And you can see he dies in 1910. And after 1906, there's a real slowness to the production. And I think at the end of his life, there are some scholars who like to read into some of those late paintings into him thinking really about the end of his own life. And there's a darkness to them, and there's one in particular, um, I think it's Driftwood, where there's a figure with their back to us, and the question everybody asks is, you know, is he painting himself looking out into the sunset? Um, But I do think, what I like about what you're saying is, I think that in the period he's in Maine, and particularly at Prout's Neck, and in the studio from 1883 to 1910, I love the paintings before 1883, and there are a lot about American iconography and identity. And But at the late paintings from a more scholarly, artistic, aesthetic, there's something quite powerful here. And I think he found the place that changed him and made him the artist he always wanted to be. So by the time he was getting older, he was okay with what he had done. He was really proud of what he had accomplished, and coming to Maine changed his oeuvre entirely. And I think that um, he found that moment where literally being able to get up in the morning and see the sunset, work a little bit, take a walk, possibly fish, 
you know, see the sunset and go to bed. He found a certain spiritual bliss in that moment. And I think, you know, he really was a studio 19th century painter. I think he's the bridge painter from the 19th to 20th century. But he was a studio guy. He's definitely painting in the studio. He's not taking large canvases and plopping them up on the cliff like a lot of people want him to be. They want him to be outdoors all the time. He was walking, fishing, and hunting all the time. And I think he was absorbing nature. And what you see in that painting really is his new religion was nature. And over time, as he gets older and he's in Maine longer, the beginning paintings, the kind of classic Dory painting and lifeline, are these very kind of classic academic studies with figures and narratives. And over time, the figures start to get smaller. They turn their back. And suddenly they begin, for example, in our painting, Weatherbeaten, they disappear. The narrative is nature. There's no story to look at from looking at a figure or the relationship of two figures, which really was the backbone of his art before he came to Maine. A lot of artists, when they get older and they have less ability, they turn to etchings and things like that. Prince, uh, for instance, Frank Benson, I know, yeah, did that. Toward, yeah. um, did Homer do that? or did he, I know he did you know, prints and etchings, but did he do that toward the end of his life, or was it always... You know, I I don't want to say dates exactly because I, I might you know get, you know plenty of good Homer scholars out there are going to correct me on the exact date and and they should. But um, when he arrives, he paints again these these kind of six, seven, eight classic kind of Winslow Homer paintings when he arrives in Maine. Um, Lifeline being a good example, um, and there's one painting of a series of four or five male figures in the surf, which is so strong and so sculptural, but much more of an academic looking painting. And out of those paintings, he thought that those were so strong that they would make good etchings. And so what he did was in the mid let's say late 1880s, early 1890s, he did etchings particularly of those paintings and different variations on those paintings. But he was very good at it, spent a lot of time on it, but it was a very short period of his life where he was working on that. And I think actually... He was a real entrepreneur. I mean, I think of him as kind of this, you know, American, pull up the bootstraps, self-taught, went to the Civil War, dug in, tried to sell some paintings, sold some paintings, got better, kept painting, got good at watercolor. He's paying attention to the market. You know, by the time he's up here, the notion of being able to make an etching of a great painting and making 10 of them and then selling 10 at a different price of the same painting was pretty attractive. I mean, that notion at that point, you know, Sometimes now we think about editions and how many etchings, you know. At that point, you'd be making etchings and just sell as many as you could. It was another way of entering into the market and having your work um, reach a much broader audience. And I think he was ahead of that kind of technology of trying to get those prints out into the market. What's good is he was particularly good at it. Uh, I think of watercolors and I think of Bermuda. Was it Bermuda? Um, But it... When I'm thinking of this, it makes me wonder, what are some of the other places where he painted? And another question, did he paint any oils in Bermuda? Was it all watercolor? You know, it's a good question. My, I have to, I have to, as you can already tell by my talk, I'm, I'm, I spend most of my time working on Homer post 1880. But he does go down in the Caribbean. And there's no doubt that he's doing watercolors in the Caribbean and he's doing drawings. Um, he probably is doing some painting. But we actually have an, you know, an image here of him. The only real photograph we have of him in the studio is him doing a Caribbean painting, one that's in the Met, and that's like a classic image. And maybe we can, you know, put up on your website. People can see. It's it's the classic image, but it's un. It's people are like, oh my gosh, how could he have finished that particular painting in Maine when it's so about 
um, the Caribbean. And I think that has to do again with the fact that he's a studio painter. This is where his real goods were. This is where he painted. You know, he went other places to be, and he would do some paintings, but not at the level of output that he would do here. And in terms of other places, we have to remember that you know I'm going to you know he would say he was an outdoorsman, environmentalist. What do you want to call it? He was a mad hunter and fisherman and sailor, and he's in the Adirondacks. He's going far up north into Canada. He, his brother, and his father, you know, any chance they had, especially out of Prouts, they are fishing and hunting all the time. He really was living the life that you see in those paintings. You know, he's making noise in the thickets. He's, he's out there all the time. And I think that's what comes through in the paintings when he's in Maine is he's at one with nature. And that's what kind of comes through. So as far as you know, he never went out west and painted out there in the scenery, the great scenery like a lot of the Hudson School painters did. He was certainly aware of the Hudson River Valley School. There's no doubt about that. And Church had come to Maine, and so had Cole. So he was aware of that tradition and including those artists coming here. The one place that I think that he traveled to, besides the Caribbean um, and, and the Adirondacks in Canada, that had a major impact, on, I think, on his you know, painting, he went to Color Coats. Um, before he moved to Prout's Neck in the early 80s, he spent about a year or two in Color Coats. And it's at that point where he kind of um, settled into a fishing village and began to go down and, and hang out on the docks. It was a very active fishing village, you know, industry and fishing, and almost started looking at, I'm not quite sure why tradition has come up with this term, but they always say that he was interested in fisher folk. I guess it's people working on the water. But it was also women. And he got pretty obsessed with the people. And he started doing some unbelievable... The output that we know the best from that period are his watercolors of, of people working, carrying things, um, kind of rough. And his focus on um, everyday people with such intensity and with such respect. It wasn't patronizing. It wasn't a saccharine sweet image. It was like respect of people who were working hard and working on the sea. And I think that moved him away from some of the more fashionable paintings. You can have those beautiful croquet paintings and some of the paintings of you know with women in just beautiful dresses or some of the I think very sweet paintings of you know the young the young maiden down at the well the boys fishing um, he moves from that kind of genre to this other genre or this more um, everyday life people um, versus like um, fixed fixed identity of a character that he's presenting and I think when he comes back uh, to the United States it's about that moment where his brother invites him to move up to Prout's Neck. And I think that pivotal moment in England was really the platform for what happened in Maine. And a lot of people see in that work the antecedents of what's about to come. That he's made a shift from before, it's kind of the transition, and then in Maine he really comes you know, full fruition of the artist that he wants to be. And it's interesting that his brother invites him to come to Maine and that the studio that we're, we're talking in right now literally was the carriage house attached to his brother's house. Mm. And so Charles was, I always think, um, you know, one of my kind of stories is thinking about Charles, his older brother, as kind of the Theo, um, Vincent Van Gogh's brother. Um, every moment in Winslow Homer's life, um, Charles seemed to have stepped up 
and um, helped Homer just a little bit to keep him going. And I think that's because, A, he loved his brother. They were very close. But more like Theo Van Gogh, he knew how great of an artist his brother was. And it wasn't just bias as a family member. He just understood his brother and how important he was. So when he saw moments, um, there's a family story that he comes back from the Civil War and he paints three paintings. And... um, he says to the family, I'm going to sell these paintings. If they sell, if these paintings sell, I'm going to be an artist, you know, fine artist. And they sell, and later on, the family sells the story that the brother actually bought them but didn't tell him. Oh um, the brother brings him up here in 1883, and, and Homer says, I don't want to. And he says, well, maybe. And then he says, yes. And then he says, well, I'll take, take the carriage house and move it 100 yards. So his brother moves it. And then as a birthday present, um, the studio that was attached, the, a new studio was built as a birthday present by Charles to his brother brother that's attached to the back of the studio. And I think Charles, like Theo Van Gogh, whenever Vincent was in trouble, Theo always found a way to get him to the right place to calm him down and always sent paints. Is there any other artistic uh, talent in the Homer family? It's a good question there. You know, we actually have in the studio, if you come for the tours, um, we, have a, we have a photograph of his mother, and we actually have two painted plates that she did, and she was a pretty accomplished um, watercolorist, and we have a couple of her works actually in the museum. Again, that's the connection of being able to acquire the studio directly from the family and the capacity of the family and willingness to really try to build that story and have a place where those items are archived. So his mother was definitely, this, was definitely sympathetic to, to being an artist and and had some talent so we're just about out of time but is there any winslow homer myths that you're aware of that you know that aren't true let's see uh one myth that i think i can um there is a myth that he had a cart that he drove around Prout's neck with all of his paints and he set up his big canvases down on the rocks and painted large paintings um, and was really a kind of, you know, outdoor Barbizon school kind of painter. Um, he was not an outdoor painter. There's no doubt that he sketched. There's no doubt he may have done small paintings, but in terms of his production, he really was a studio painter. And I think that's why this place, this studio is so important because so much of his output was done in the studio. And one of the great things about the studio is there's very much, um, or actually there's very little that has changed since he was here. And the most important part of the, the studio, to be honest, is being able to get up on the piazza and look out at the view and walk the cliff walk and go see where the paintings, you know, where he made them. And, and that's an experience you can only come, you can only experience coming to the studio itself. Okay, so that's great. Let's talk about if someone wants to come to the studio. How they can do that? Well, um, the studio is, a, as you can imagine, um, one of the things we like to think about with our studio is, you know, I think the studio itself. If you compare it to other important artist studios, we like to think of the two that are the that help people understand how interesting a visit here is. If you ever go out to see O'Keeffe's Ghost Ranch or Abacue. Abacue Ghost Ranch, New Mexico, changed Georgie O'Keeffe. You go out there. The world changed for O'Keeffe entirely. If you think of Claude Monet going to Giverny, 
it changed everything. Um, you can go to Giverny and you can go visit Giverny with a couple hundred people, maybe thousands every day. The studio is a very intimate, special place. We never wanted this to be something where lots of people could come visit because it's about intimacy. It's not about getting people through the door. And so the way to find your way out here is to really go to our website. You can certainly call the museum and make an appointment. You know, is you come to the museum, um, come see our homers, and then we have a, a beautiful van that brings you out about 15, 20 minutes from Portland to Scarborough out to Prout's Neck. And then when you come out here, we have one of our guides give you a first-hand experience, and you'll never have more than 10 or 12 people on that tour. And if it's good weather, we head down to the cliff walk, um, and we focus on really the moments he had here at the studio. So when you're ready to come visit the studio, please go to our website, which is portlandmuseum.org, and take a look. I can tell you a lot of our websites dedicated to the studio. Go to the studio page and then look up tours, and you can find your way out to the studio, and I hope you'll make it. Well, this has been really wonderful, one of my favorite shows so far. So it's been great, and you've been great. Thank you very much. My pleasure, and we, we love your show, so um, we're going to keep listening, and we appreciate the opportunity to share the studio with you. This podcast is brought to you by Gemmer. Collect, trade, share on Gemmer.com.